greet you in Jesus' name this morning. This morning we will be looking at third and final message in a series entitled, I Will Build My Church. Um, statement of Christ, response to Peter when he asked Peter who he is and Peter's response Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So you have a positive and you have a negative. Someone has said, in order to understand the Bible properly, you have to understand Genesis. So we're going to go back to Genesis um, with a question. This, uh, pardon me. The title of this message is Telling the Good News, How to Evangelize and Reach Out to Those Around Us. <clears throat> so the question is, after creating man, how did God go about to convey to man who he was? What method did he use? How did God build a relationship with man? Genesis 2 says he took the man, put him in a garden to dress and to keep it. So he, first of all, he gave man a job, something to do. <clears throat> then he gives him a wife. And then he starts building a relationship with these two people. And how did he do it? The Bible says in verse 8 that he, pardon me, not necessarily verse 8. The, the Bible says that he walked with them in the cool of the day. He came down and he built a friendship with them as individuals. Now they created a problem when they sin. That problem is, what are we going to do when God comes around? See, he's coming for his evening visit. Now what are we going to do? Because we can't look God in the eye anymore. Verse 8 says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. That's what the Bible says they did. How to solve their problem. They tried to hide. We talked about that in Sunday school. So God comes down, and he has evangelistic meetings. what he did. First evangelistic meeting. So God reaches out to the people that are not right with him. And he asks them a question. Exactly the same question he asked me and he asked you. 
Where are you? Where are you? And I think that question had a lot more dynamics than where's your locality or where are you hiding? <clears throat> where are you at in your relationship with me? What, what's the problem here? Somehow or other, I'm not finding you where I always found you. You're not easy accessible anymore. Where are you relationship with me? Where are you relationship with this sin you committed? <clears throat> you see, every relationship has to start with a point of reference. And Adam and Eve's relationship was improper yet correct in the fact that they based their relationship on an accurate point of reference. And that accurate point of reference was who God was and what God expected of them in regards to purity in their life. So because they had a proper void of point of reference, they hid. Because we, we can't look God in the eye anymore. And they saw themselves as not worthy of walking with God. They, they saw themselves with having a, a, a broken relationship. And they saw themselves exceeding sinful. i got to go hide. I can't stand here and act like nothing happened. Relationships are dependent on and subsequent to our relationship with God. So you say, how does this relate to evangelistic evangelism and reaching out? It means that if I don't have a relationship with God, that I should then I will not be able to effectively evangelize those around me. Because I'm in a hiding mode. I, I can't do it. There's something wrong. <clears throat> Jesus said, the two points of relationship, the two points that support all other truth. He says, one of the greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he said. And he also added, he said, on these two points hang every other thing you do. So when you walk into your closet in the morning, alright, and you see your closet rod, alright, visualize Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where one end of the rod hangs. The other 
end of the rod hangs on love your neighbor as yourself, and all the clothes hang on them two things. And if one cuts loose, the whole thing goes down. And all the clothes are on the floor. So you can just visualize that. So what I do, what I'm wearing as a Christian today, depends on the support of loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. Could God have reestablished a relationship with Adam and Eve if he secretly hated them? You see the point? If he secretly hated them, the rod would have fallen down and everything would have been on the floor. So, if we're going to tell the good news, where do we start? Uh, Should we start with a committee? Okay, we're going to evangelize the world. We're going to get people... uh, Bring people to Christ. Should we get a committee? Should we, or should we take an offering first? Uh, takes a lot of money to run a mission, so maybe we should get an offering first, then we make a committee. I'm not sure. So maybe, uh, or you could go to your computer and you could Google missions and see how everybody else gets a mission started. Or maybe you could bypass all that and start my own mission. Because all other Christians have small faith, and, and I'll start my own ministry. Now, this is a theory that I've heard. I really don't need anyone telling me what to do all the time. Someone has to go to all those third world countries and teach those poor people how to farm the way we do in the United States. Once they learn how to do things the right way, we can lead them to the Lord. All we need to do is educate them. Once they are delivered from their ignorance, they will understand that the American way is always the best way. And by our great faith and successful results, we can get all those passive home folks off center and get them involved in real mission work. And maybe we could empty half of the Mennonites out of the Midwest Fellowship churches. Wouldn't that be splendid? I've stood there and heard that theory. Or would it be possibly more effective... I got down on my knees and I said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then went out, extended that mercy to those that need it. Those that are better than me, those that deserve it more than me. Those whose inner needs are exactly the same as mine. I think sometimes we think, or we understand that we are different than our culture. 
And the, God calls us to be different from our culture. All right? We know that. But I think we take that theory too far. That other people aren't like me. In the book, God Tells the Man Who Cares, A.W. Tozer says this, and, I, and to me it's very, very profound. I apologize if I repeat here this morning. I'm not sure what I read in my sermons and what I don't. Uh, so if I repeat this, that's fine. I'm always challenged by it. He says, The soul of man does not change fundamentally, no matter how external conditions may change. The aborigine in his hut, the college professor in his study, the truck driver in the bedlam of city traffic have all the same basic needs to be rid of their sins, to obtain eternal life, and to be brought into communion with God. Civilized noises and activities are surface phenomena, a temporary rash on the epidermis of the human life. To attribute sound values to them and then try to bring religion into harmony with them is to commit a moral blunder so huge as to stagger the imagination and one for which we shall surely be paying long after this frenetic extravaganza we call civilization has ended in tragedy and everlasting grief. What certain religious leaders, teachers, fail to understand is that true Christian experience takes place in the human spirit far in and beneath the changing surface of things. It is only the surface that responds to noise and agitation. The deep in part of the man lies in primeval silence waiting that, uh, that quickening word that shall give it second birth. Because this far in spirit of the man is separated from God, the whole life is out of order, so the flesh and the imagination take over and direct the thinking, the willing and the doing of the individual man and the race of which he is a part. These create the dance of death we know as society and in which as natural men we find ourselves. Be it remembered, that the great essential facts have not changed. Men are still what they were, and the Son of Man is forever who and what He was. He calls to, eternal, to the eternal in us. Deep calls unto deep, and the Western, and the, pardon me, deep calls unto deep, and the call, if it is heard at all, is heard by that in us, which is neither savage nor civilized, young or old, western or oriental, but simply human and once made in the image of God.
our machinery, our technology, our ease of living, everything does not change man one little bit. So what is my view of the unsaved? What is my vision for the unsaved? If my view of God, who stands unparalleled in eternal light and holiness, is accurate, can I look down on fallen man with disdain? Will I look down on the unsaved at all? But for the grace of God go I. Am I only called to minister to the down and out? What about the up and out? Those that have supposedly everything in life that life has to offer except Christ. Can and does my personal pride stand in the way of effectively telling the good news? Some sobering questions to me. You see, God came down and he walked with Adam and Eve. And when they sinned, he called them back to himself. And he built a relationship with them. Called them to repentance. He continued to work on their friendship. I googled what do non-Christians, what turns non-Christians off the most about Christians. And one of them was, the biggest one, was that they stink at friendships. When they stink at friendships. Not that they do, but when they do. I had to think about that. Statistics tell us, you don't have to read very far, that most of the people who give their lives to the Lord have related in a friend-to-friend manner with a Christian over an extended period of time. Most likely. So if I'm not doing well with friendships, with my fellow Christians, can I expect them to be impressed? They won't be impressed. Because they have enough problems of their own. But then, you know, that that whole principle works for the Christian. If a non-Christian comes into a Christian setting and sees God's people relating to each other as God calls them to, there's little more powerful than that. Somewhere they can go to effectively fill their need for fellowship and for friendship and companionship. What a tremendous privilege we have. 
When I reach out to others, is my perspective our mission, our church, or is it behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? So when God says, I want you to tell the good news, do I cringe in fear? Do I go hide myself? Am I available? Do I have a passion for those that don't know the Lord? Do I want others to progress spiritually? Whether they are Christian or non-Christian? Again, I don't know if I've read this or not here, but I'm going to read it again anyhow. I read this parables to everybody at Bible school so often. I don't know who I read them to and who I don't. So, The last postage stamp. Did I read this here? The last postage stamp. Keturah spoke, spake unto me and said, Hast thou any postage stamps? And I said, I have none here, but I have some in my study. And she said, I wish thou wouldst take some letters for me, and see thou forget not to mail them. Three weeks is a limit for thee to carry those letters in thy pocket. And I said, My dear, I'm not sure why Delilah delivered Samson over to the Philistine, but I think he had forgotten to mail her letters. I will be careful and remember. But how is it that thou art out of postage stamps? And she said, I was sure I had some. For in my drawer was a whole strip of what I thought were stamps upside down. But but when I went to get some stamps, behold, there was not a stamp there. Only there was a long strip of perforated paper that had been torn off the margin of a sheet of stamps. And instead of ten stamps, there were ten scraps of paper. And I said, there are a few disappointments so great in life as that of going to the stamp box in confident expectation and finding the last stamp gone and the post office closed. And she said, it would not have been so bad if it had not been that there were in the box those papers that looked like stamps. Now I thought of this. And I considered the disappointment of Keturah, how those blank stamps were a delusion and a hollow mockery and a snare, whereas, had it not been there, she had said cheerfully, yes, we have no postage stamps, and straightway gone and bought some, or asked her husband to bring some across. Now this is the sad thing in human experience. Not that there are no men, And not that there are no women, but when the time cometh, when there have seemed to be men and women enough for any possible event, whole rows and sheets of them are good for nothing, and worse than nothing, because they create a false sense of security. For they lacked what the perforated blanks lacked, 
the stamp of personality and authority and power upon the one side and the glue of tenacity of purpose upon the other. Now I thought of this, and I remembered the bitter words of the prophet concerning the sorrows of God. Did he look for someone to stand in the gap? But there were people, and though there were people enough, there were none that had the picture in the glue. And I think this must have been the sorrow of God in all ages. For God has sometimes stood with a handful of righteous purposes, for which he would have sent some great event to Spokane, and another to Santa Fe, and another to Skohagen, but he could not do many mighty works there or any of those places. So the cry of God ringeth out. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And if so be, there respondeth a person, and saith, Here am I, send me. And that one hath both the impress of God upon the face of him, and a thick coating of glue upon his purpose, then doth God arrive. But God doth look often in his stamp box and finds whole strips of blank margins. Is God looking to do mighty works? Blooming Prairie. Is he looking to do mighty works in your community? You see, you and I are the face of Jesus Christ to our neighbors. I was sitting in my desk. The phone rang. Secretary says it's for you. Sure, so I answered the phone, and it was some concerned person on the other end of the line that had less than lack of appreciation for something that was happening at Maranatha Bible School. Very kind. Consider, but let me know that wasn't appropriate and whatever. So I thanked them and said, sure, I'll pass it along to the board. And uh, it had nothing to do with my job. Like, the more boiler misbehaves, I just call Ellen them boiler and they take care of it. You know, it's like. So I said, I'll inform the board and uh, I'll make sure they get the message. Appreciate the call, appreciate the concern, whatever. And uh, hung up cordial conversation and I turned to Dave Fry and I says uh, so why do people call me I, I, I said I'm business administrator I mean I don't set policy for this place I don't enforce policy for this place I don't I'm not responsible for any of the students or the staff's behavior I sweep the floors I keep the boiler gone make sure there's food on the shelf it had nothing to do with 
polluted food being served or whatever. I said, why do they call me? I, I said, I don't understand that. I said, why don't they call the board chairman? And he said, because you're the face of Maranatha. I said, no, wait a minute. I, I said, I don't do all this stuff. I, I, I just work here. I mean, you know, whatever. And he said, well, you are the face of Maranatha, whether you like it or whether you don't. Smile, turned around in his chair, and went back to work. I suppose just because I'm there so long, I don't know. You know what, brothers and sisters, this morning? We are the face of Jesus Christ. Whether we like it or whether we don't. That's just the way it is. So when God calls, and He says, Whom will I... Whom will... Whom shall I send and who will I go for us? What is my reply? Do I have the glue? Do I have the tenacity of purpose? I hesitate to read this, but I'm going to read it anyhow, and I hope I'm not understood. But I'm, I'm going to read this in regards to tenacity of purpose in regards to Abraham Lincoln. All right. So take this right. I'm just reading it about tenacity of purpose. I'm not trying to glorify him in any way. God did put him in his place, in his time, for a purpose. We know that. We understand that from the scriptures. But I was challenged. And I will read it to you. Newton Bateman, superintendent of public instruction for the state of Illinois, occasionally joined Lincoln for a private talk after one of the long days of his campaigning was over. One day in October, Lincoln called Bateman to his room in the state house and asked him to go over a survey of all the voters in Springfield, which listed how each citizen intended to cast his ballot. Let's look over this book said Mr. Lincoln. I wish particularly to see how the ministers of Springfield are going to vote. As they turned the pages, Mr. Lincoln asked, if this one or that one were not a minister or an elder or a member of this church or that. When he had closed the book and Lincoln had looked at his notes, he turned to Bateman with inexpressible sadness. Here are 23 ministers of different denominations, and all of them are against me but three. And here are a great many prominent members of the churches, a very large majority of whom are against me. Mr. Bateman, I am not a Christian. God knows I would be. But I have carefully read the Bible, and I do not understand I have carefully read the Bible, and I do not so understand this book. 
Taking a copy of the New Testament out of his pocket, he continued, These men well know that I am for freedom in the territories, freedom everywhere as far as the Constitution and laws will permit, and that my opponents are for slavery. They know this, and yet, with this book in their hands, in the light of which human bondage cannot live a moment, they're going to vote against me. I do not understand it at all. I know there is a God, he said, and that he hates injustice and slavery. I see a storm coming, and I know that his hand is in it. If he has a place and a work for me, and I think he has, I believe I am ready. I am nothing, but the truth is everything. And I know that I am right because I know liberty is right, for Christ teaches it, and Christ is God. I have told them that a house divided against itself cannot stand, and Christ and reason say the same, and they will find it so. Douglas doesn't care whether slavery is voted up or voted down, but God cares, and humanity cares, and I care, and with God's help I shall not fail. I may not see the end, but, I, but it will come. And I will be vindicated, and these men will find that they have not read their Bibles right. A man that says, I am not a Christian. Abraham Lincoln was told, you go to Washington, they will kill you. And he says, despite it all, I will do what I know is right. Leave it all aside, every, all the ramifications of mixing politics and religion and whatever else. Like, that's not my point this morning. The point is tenacity of purpose, despite whether I live or whether I die. Sometimes we, I think, play games with God and say, God, you know, I'm just one person. I can't do anything, and I, I'm just, you know, I'm nobody. And What if your friend told you that? You're just one person. You're a nobody. You can't do anything. How would that go down? You see, God's not looking for qualified people. He's looking for people that he can qualify to do the job. Merle Buckholder told the youth of Maranatha Bible School, and I know that I've said this over the pulpit here, if you want an exciting life, you want a life filled with action, just make your default answer yes to God. That's all you need. Make your default answer yes to God. He said, you don't have to go out and buy a bent piece of plywood and find a snow-covered hill to get a rush. Just make your default answer yes to God. You will have more excitement than you can handle. You may say, well, the title of the message, how to reach out to the community and you aren't even saying how to do it. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the method is in God's hands. If I stood up here and says, you've got to get this committee and you've got to do this and you've got to get so many funds and you've got to name it this and, and you've got to make sure the church is behind you and, you, and then you go and, and everybody in church is supposed to participate. Guess how that would go over? You know, we're all, our default answer is yes. The direction of the Holy Spirit and leading of the Lord is going to give you and I all the work that we can handle. All the work that we can handle. More than what we can handle. There's always more that this congregation can can accomplish. There's all, all, always more than any one individual can accomplish. There's always more than one whole family can accomplish. I would just say, if you don't know, and if you haven't recognized where you can help, I would just suggest pitch in and some, help somebody that's got more than they have to do. You know, and when you get involved in that, you'll soon have more than what you can do. Just pay attention. Volunteer. Don't look for big things. Just look for simple things. Be a willing servant. I believe if God sees in my heart and your heart a willing servant, why would he pass it up? Why would he? God wants his work done here. And if he sees a willing servant, say, oh, well, you know, I got a willing servant down there, but it's like, well, so what? No. God intensely cares about whether the work's getting done. He intensely cares that you're going to have the strength to do it. He intensely cares about all these things. And he'll help you to do it. It doesn't have to be glamorous. That lady that came to Jesus uh, so challenges me. She poured that ointment on Jesus and the disciples said, ah, you know, it's not wasting the money and wasting this. And, and Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. She did what she could. And I ask you, along with me this morning, can there be a greater benediction, a blessing from God in your life and my life? We can't do the way, we can't turn the whole world upside down all by ourselves. We can't revolutionize the whole community. We can't do all these things. But God's expect us to do what we can. And when we do it, God says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Cut the criticism. Doing what they can. Just work up to your maximum capability. Sure, you're going to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. But do the best you can. We live in Ohio. Young married couple. A couple of children coming on. I don't know which one it was. One, two, three, number four, or whatever. I... I, all 
I know is I just like more work and I get done and I, you know, and you're working long days and you're doing all this stuff and, you know, and your wife's expecting and, you know, and so end up day comes and, you know, babies. So that's another something else, you know, then you got to take care of this, you got to take care of that. And you got to go see the mom, and you got to see the baby, and you got to do all this stuff, and you got to work the same amount of hours and all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> all the things that our bishop did for me, and it's way more, I realize now, it's way more than I ever thought he did. All right? You never know what it is till you walk in the shoes, all right? But there's one thing I will never forget, unless I get Alzheimer's, and so that's I can't help that anyhow. All right, one thing I will never forget: I coming home from work, my bishop mowing my yard. Never forget it. Big things. Not to him. To me, I will never forget it. He came to visit. I wasn't home. Yet, my wife is no shake to mow the yard. He saw the grass was high. He opened the garage door. He put gas in the push mower, and he was mowing my yard. You see, God's work will get done. I will build my church. Not saying, he didn't say if this happens, if that happens, if something else happens, then the church might be built. Jesus said, I will build my church. It will happen. It'll get done. If I refuse to do it, God will find somebody else to do it. It's only I that will cut myself out of the blessing. I'm sure God's disappointed. But he'll find somebody more committed than I am to get it done. Because it will be done. That is such a challenge to me. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he also said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I don't know what all that means. But I do mean, I do know one thing. That we're going to be the winners in the end if we are part of the church of Jesus Christ. I know that. That is for sure. I always looked at that statement as Satan attacking the church. But he's not saying that Satan is attacking the gates of heaven. And the gates of heaven are holding up. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the gates of hell won't hold up. 
Who's to be the aggressor? The gates of hell will not hold up against the attack of the church of Jesus Christ on evil by the grace of God and by the help of God. That's our job. So however you look at it, I'm not here to pick bones about the, the illustration of how it's supposed to be. But I do know we're going to win. I do know Satan's going to lose. Will I be a part of the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ? And will I be willing to reach out to those around me to be a part of that great final event?